0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning and welcome to today's webinar uh, focusing on Latin American and Caribbean energy project financing and the path to net zero regional challenges and opportunities. For for several Latin American Caribbean countries, notably Mexico, Ecuador, Brazil, Argentina, and Guyana, production of oil and gas is vital for their fiscal health. This dilemma has only been exasperated by the economic challenges derived by the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, countries in the region face growing pressures to decarbonize their economies. To support Latin American and Caribbean countries on the path towards net-zero objectives International and financing institutions and multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank and the IDB, are now working to de-emphasize the funding of fossil fuel-related projects. To address these issues and growing challenges of balancing energy transition and job growth with the realities of securing badly needed external financing to, to support economic recoveries, the Institute of the Americas is honored to host Jessica Bedoya, the Inter- Inter-American Development Bank's chief chief of staff and chief strategy officer uh, to our first hybrid forum. Jessica Bedoya um, is the primary advisor to the president of the IDB on institutional strategy and investment policy. She has extensive leadership experience in international affairs and policymaking and a track record successfully coordinating with the private sector across Latin America and the Caribbean. Prior to joining the IDB, Jessica spent 15 years in the US government Most recently as the managing director for Western Hemisphere and senior advisor to the CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, the DFC. At the DFC, Jessica led strategic business development in Latin America and the Caribbean and identified finance and investment opportunities up to a billion dollars in agriculture, infrastructure, and technology. From 2018 to 2020, Jessica served as the Deputy Senior Director for Western Hemispheric, Western Hemispheric Affairs at the NSC, where she created and developed and directed U.S. policy parties in Latin America. Jessica strengthened bilateral relationships by increasing the U.S. presence in the region and expanding economic growth opportunities. In addition, as a regional expert, she advised the National Security Advisor and led execution of the America Cresce, Uh, program, which catalyzed private sector investment in Latin America. Prior to her time at the NSC, Jessica served as the foreign policy and U.S. intelligence community advisor, informing them and advising and implementing policy across the Western Hemisphere. She's also mobilized international support for key initiatives by working with leaders from governments and the private sector. She has worked at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota and has also worked in, in Haiti and the Eastern Caribbean. Jessica holds a Bachelor of Arts in International uh, Politics and International Economics from George Washington University and a Master's in World Politics from Catholic University of America, as well as having studied political science at the Sorbonne in Paris. Jessica speaks English, Spanish, and French and has parents um, from Colombia as well as Ecuador. At this time, I'm pleased to um, introduce Jessica who will share her perspectives on this growing challenge we face today on reconciling um, climate change, the, the move to net zero, and energy transition, Jessica, take it away.
1: Thank you so much, Richard, for that kind introduction. Every time I hear my bio, I feel like I'm blushing. So thank <laughs> you so much. I'm very humbled for for, for the opportunity. On behalf of the Inter American Development Bank, I want to thank you, Richard, and the Institute for this platform to be able to share here on the West Coast what we are trying to do from the East Coast all the way south into Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, Today, the issue is Latin American energy project finance and the path to net zero. And I think that this could not be a more timely session because we at the IDB are trying to focus now on how we can do better in the region in terms of project finance and how we can get countries to net zero, because that's the way forward. That's the way of the future. We're looking at climate change as an issue of our generation. And because of that, what I'd like to do is start first with a little bit of context of what we're seeing from the bank in the region in terms of trends. and and highlight what we're trying to do to advance these efforts. Now, even before the pandemic, the region, Latin America and the Caribbean, was grappling with a lot of significant challenges. Those included inequality, a lack of confidence in governments, budget deficits and a need for much more investment in social services, infrastructure and energy diversification. In late 2019, and I know this may seem like a stretch, but we have to go back to 2019 because COVID had frozen, has frozen time. But I had firsthand experienced the millions of people clamoring on the streets in Latin American countries all the way from Ecuador to Chile in response to hikes in transportation costs, wage decreases, and disparate access to public services. Then came COVID, which exacerbated those problems, and today has created an economic crisis not seen in nearly 200 years in the region. And now a few sobering statistics to paint that picture of what we're experiencing in Latin America and the Caribbean today. 8% of the world's population, yet almost a third of all of the COVID-19 deaths globally. That's about one and a half million people that we've lost. And then there's a loss of livelihoods. We estimate that 52 million people have fallen out of the middle class in the last year. And over 30 million have lost full-time jobs. What does that mean? Higher rates of labor informality, A more disaffected former middle class in the region. The pandemic has been especially hard on women and children. 100 million kids were locked out of classrooms. And the UN recently reported that two and three children are still not back in school. And I can't go without saying a a little bit about women in the region, which we view as the motor. They will be the economic motor towards recovery and recuperation in the long term. But right now, they're facing a zero-sum choice. Women in the region have to decide. Either I stay home, and take care of my parents or my grandparents or my children, and I leave my job. And the, what's the choice? I have to leave my job because these responsibilities are calling to me. And that is unacceptable for us at the Inter-American Development Bank. Now, as it relates to today's discussion on Latin America, the Caribbean and project finance, let's talk about climate change. Climate change, like I said, is the issue of this generation. And for those of us who have observed Latin America, have been students of the region for most of our careers, we are seeing the adverse impact of climate change to the region today. Polls right now show that eight out of 10 people in Latin the Caribbean are worried about climate change. And there's a significant reason to worry. Our colleagues at the World Bank recently estimated that by 2030, climate change could push over 132 million people off the cliff into extreme poverty. And that's a significant number because most of those people will be in the developing world. Now, in our region, climate change looks like extreme weather events, including severe droughts, flooding, hurricanes that have continued to upend the region throughout the pandemic. And countries still need the support, technical and financial, to build resilience, to adapt and to mitigate all of that damage. Last year was among the three hottest recorded in the history of Central America and the Caribbean. Record hit waves hit parts of South America and a drought in the southern Amazon region was the worst in 50 years. And so now, what is the impact? We are seeing reduced crop yields and agricultural output. Slowed, if not paralyzed shipping because of low water levels and impacts of the supply of everything from beef to avocados, to coffee beans and corn, all of which come from the breadbasket that is Latin America and the Caribbean. Now, we're looking, we're looking at any media outlet today. What are the headlines saying? Stories about burgeoning energy prices that spanning are spanning continents and countries. And this is a significant trend. And now we must think about this. If the industrialized and developed worlds are suffering from an energy crisis today, What is the impact on the developing world? What is the impact on the Latin American Caribbean region? They are the most vulnerable. We had almost 7 million people whose lives were disrupted by Hurricane Ita and Iota just last fall. Those storms caused over $6 billion in damages in Central America alone. The ongoing occurrence of events like this is akin to yet another pandemic, one that all of us have to confront. At the IDB, we reviewed these issues, and internally we've assessed that if we do not keep global warming to under 2 degrees centigrade, we estimate that the annual damage for climate change could total upwards of $100 billion just in our region. And if that isn't the wake-up call, we don't know what is. Now, doing things differently is exactly what we are now doing at the IDB. It's why I am delighted to be here with you today. At the bank, we are seeing the challenges, but we want to take action. And the first step we took is create the Vision 2025, which is our blueprint for achieving recovery and sustainable development in the Americas. Our vision 2025 outlines five key priority areas for reinvestment, including supply chains and regional integration, the support for small and medium-sized enterprises, digitalization, gender equity and inclusion, and of course, climate change, which is central to all of the work that we're doing. We know that when we invest in clean energy and ecosystem conservation, we not only achieve faster growth, but we enable growth that is sustainable and that benefits even more people. For us, Resilience and a net zero future is the best bet. For example, we're seeing this in Costa Rica with their national decarbonization plan, which I'm proud that the bank did a lot of significant work with the government of Costa Rica to advance. This plan alone could yield $41 billion in net benefits within 30 years through savings in energy, improvements in ecosystem services, and agricultural yields. In Peru, we estimate that achieving carbon neutrality could create upwards of $140 billion in net benefits by 2050 by transforming transportation, energy, and agricultural sectors. Clean energy stimulus programs also generate up to five times more jobs for every dollar invested than fossil fuel-based energy programs. So we know that going green is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for the people of the region. So how do we go green most effectively? The key to all of this is public policy, which is a top catalyst for energy investment anywhere. More than 70% of energy infrastructure investment worldwide is driven by government policies. Public policy is critical to creating the type of long-term stable and enabling investment environment required to unleash all the private capital that is out there. The pandemic forced governments to design stimulus packages to jumpstart their economies. Now that growth is returning, we must design policies to power development that is sustainable both socioeconomically and environmentally. A green investment strategy is not just the best way to get us there. It's the only viable way of doing so. To get there, What we recommend are a range of ambitious long-term policies that address broad goals, not just individual projects. First, we must create and apply regulatory frameworks, tax codes, fiscal policy that encourage investment in renewable energy, electromobility, and clean resilient infrastructure. We have worked with public and private sector partners on more than 50 electromobility initiatives in nearly 19 countries. And so far, we've helped deliver over 600 clean buses in 14 cities. Few people might know this, but Chile has over 800 electric buses already. And this is the largest fleet of its kind outside of China. And this is a model that we expect to scale in the region and model everywhere. Second, our policies must be aligned with decarbonization frameworks and be based on the National Future contributions to comply with the Paris Agreement. And the NDCs are a huge issue that we plan to discuss also when we join the COP26 conversation. We know that combating climate change requires an all-hands-on-deck, whole of institutional view and approach. Increasingly, government officials and industry leaders understand the scope of the challenge and the need to scale up investment faster than ever. That makes it crucial to demonstrate that going green will create jobs, high-quality jobs. And we know that this is the case, and now this is our effort to get the word out to everyone. Going green means job growth. With good policies and job creation, the energy transition can be successful. A new projection by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that two of the top three fastest growing jobs over the next decade will be in renewable energy. This includes jobs, for example, such as a wind turbine service technician, where we can see a lot of growth in a lot of countries in the region today. We estimate moving to net zero carbon emissions could provide 15 million net jobs in Latin America and the Caribbean over just the next 10 years. And all of this sound could seem like a very tall task are a very big challenge, but the region is exceptionally well-positioned to transition to renewables. Just consider its vast amount of resources, to include water. We're talking about a region where it has the world's cheapest renewable electricity and the largest resources of copper and lithium reserves, which are essential for building wind turbines, empowering electric vehicles, and creating solar panels. South America alone is home to the lithium triangle, where we have two-thirds of the world's lithium resources. And this is a huge boon and a huge opportunity for everybody. To create green jobs, we also must pursue policies that make it easier for companies to train workers in renewable energy construction, maintenance, and operation. This includes offering incentives to retain workers to upskill them who are currently working in carbon-intensive sectors. Legal and policy frameworks also are a factor, and we must make it easier and less expensive to invest, not just in clean power generation and transmission capacity, but also all of this critical skills training. Now, what is the problem? Surging oil and gas prices as we saw natural gas hit a seven year high just in the United States alone. In Europe, it increased 60% in August. We're seeing in China, coal prices are soaring. Energy crunches everywhere. And this is directly affecting everybody including factory outputs and increased blackouts. And what is the solution? A renewed focus on how project finance today on responsible energy transition can be done and how we can do it quickly. We at the IDB see this as a priority to improve environments for the investments to flow, to facilitate processes so businesses have greater interest in moving to Latin America and the Caribbean. And this is how we can seize the moment and help our countries invest in this energy transition. Doing so will help us ensure a Build Back Better strategy that does advance transition. So I've spoken a little bit about the importance of investment, but what is the outlook for investment in our region today? And what is it that we want to say about a net zero future? Now globally, to ensure a climate safe future, the world needs to triple annual investment in renewables to 800 billion through 2050. And this is according to the International Renewable Energy Agency. But to get there, we need to dramatically increase the availability of financing in the region. And this is where we play a key role. And this requires more funding from multilaterals, not just the IDB, and from other outside private sector actors as well. We need donors, we need creative minds to come and work and think with us about how we can develop creative new financial solutions to this problem that we're all facing. Now, ultimately, in addition to increased financing, governments also must set ambitious renewable energy targets and enact policy frameworks that incentivize the long-term and sustainable development. Countries that set clear, stable policies and rewards will see investments and they will see growth. Now, to accelerate this transition, we are partnering with the private sector Earlier this year, we actually launched a private sector coalition that started with 40 companies. We are now at quadruple that, over 160 companies with whom we are working to build on a sustainable recovery for the region that includes a lot of dedication of effort and work on climate change. We're also doing pioneering work in sustainable bonds and using innovative blockchain technology to ensure that funding is actually used to support sustainable growth. In addition, we have committed to a floor of 30% climate financing by 2023 ensuring over $5 billion in annual support for climate action. We are deploying and we are also developing financial tools to accelerate private sector financing for climate action to include blended finance, more green bonds, guarantees, and other de-risking mechanisms where we can do a lot more with, with all of you who are watching today. Now, we also have our NGC Invest platform. What is this? This platform helps countries find resources that they need to translate climate commitments into finance projects. And this includes more than 330 projects in almost every country that we work with in the region. Given the severity of the climate emergency and the need for sustainable recovery, we're establishing our own climate facility. And I'm really excited about this because it's not taken very long. It's been lightning speed one year and we've been able to design and develop what will be the first of its kind owned by a regional MDB. We're also helping countries design and structure the sale of catastrophe bonds to help minimize the impact of natural disasters. The IDB created a regional platform for finance ministers in the region to exchange knowledge and support concrete advances on climate change policy. And this is something that we also plan to discuss during the COP26 in Glasgow shortly. And just this week, we announced the formation of a new partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation to create a financing instrument dedicated to expanding energy access, supporting green energy transition, and creating jobs, all dedicated to Latin American Caribbean. I am very, very proud that the IDB is working to be more aggressive on climate change, even among. Our fellow MDBs with whom we work very well together, I should say. But we at the IUB want to be the pioneers. We want to be on the leading edge of what it means to be focused on climate change and on that zero initiatives. We want to use our financial instruments. We want to develop new ones so we can continue to support the region. So before concluding, I'd also like to mention that we are also acting on behalf of 12 countries in Latin America as a technical secretariat for the renewables in Latin America and Caribbean initiative known as RELAC. Another initiative that I personally am very invested in and think has been phenomenal for the bank. This is the first of its kind in the region aimed at tracking and achieving sustainable energy targets. The main goal for RELAG is to increase the share of renewable energy and the region's power sector from 58% today to nearly 70% by 2030. And these are the kinds of targets and the kind of ambition that are crucial to have tangible progress on climate change. We know that increasing the share of renewable energy by just 10 percentage points can reduce carbon emissions by 15%. That gets us a lot closer to fulfilling our Paris Agreement. Clearly, to get to net zero, we need to do much more in terms of political commitments and investment. I've outlined a whole bunch that we can discuss after I conclude my remarks. And there are countries in the region that are seeking a recovery that is green and that a transition to an energy transition that's effective and efficient and fast. But climate resilient growth takes time. And it takes creativity. For it to be sustainable and inclusive, it takes working with partnerships with MDBs like ourselves and with others. At the IDB, we are working nonstop to help countries go green. We are helping them create and enact plans to embrace technological change, to improve their regulatory frameworks, and to mobilize private sector investment. And we invite all of you today and tomorrow
0: to join us. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. I appreciate your, your remarks. I wanna encourage those of you that are listening today to uh, type in your questions, Um, we can get to those. We've got questions also from our um, in-person audience here. Also, I'll begin, you know, Jessica, you spoke about the blueprint for 2025 that the IDB has um, and it's uh, it's ambitious and uh, I wish you all the best in being able to implement it. I think one of the key challenges is gonna be workforce development um, because, the, the need to create green jobs is definitely there, and we see it in, in the developed world. But one of the biggest challenges is going to be creating those jobs and opportunities in countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. What are some of the uh, challenges you see, and maybe some of the potential opportunities the bank has to help uh, move the needle in that area?
1: Sure. I think the biggest challenge, frankly, is framing climate change as, as not an issue that can be attended to at some point in the future but an issue that is actually integral to the creation of jobs today. I think a lot of countries in the region are seeing the impact of the pandemic. They're coming out of the fog of triaging the immediate needs of the pandemic and COVID response. And then they're starting to put together plans over the long term of what this sort of economic recovery to look like. And climate change needs to be well-defined for governments who need to make tough choices, who, are, who would prefer budget support rather than dedicate money to environmental initiatives. Jobs for us at the bank is a key focus and an anchor for the Vision 2025. And so for us, the challenge is how do we frame job growth and climate as as a formula? So that's big challenge number one, and I would say the biggest one today. I think in terms of of bringing investment into the region, there are some countries that recognize that the investment that they've made in renewables and in, in, in the incipient energy transition that they're trying to engage in has provided significant economic benefits. I think where we can play a role as an institution is helping bridge the gap where they they need to see more tangible impacts in those communities where these projects are happening. And I think where we need to do a better job as an institution, as a bank, is building those bridges with those communities to ensure that they are aware that they have access to these upskilling opportunities so that the governments can see that this is touching the very people that are coming out on the streets. Uh, And and complaining about the lack of access to services and jobs, I think another big challenge just you know talking about the issue of jobs informality, and I think going green in terms of making sure that, you know, we need to get the workforce trained up and the workforce focused on this sector. We need to think about the need for labor formalization. And I think framing conversations on the need to create creative opportunities to advance and increase that percentage of labor formality, we're at nearly 76% of labor informality with the COVID impact. Bringing that down will require retraining and upskilling. but doesn't mean the traditional routes of training and education. And I think integral to this is another conversation that we can talk about later on education and what we at the bank see as the wave of the future in terms of how we're going to approach training the next generation, training our own generation. Um, We're we're looking at not only initiatives on the green sector, but we're also talking about silver economy. What does that look like? You know, we have an entire workforce who was retired who might need to go back to work because of the economic impact. How can we bring them in with their skill sets? to work in these new economies that could provide significant recovery for
0: the countries we are talking about. Thank you. Well, so let's, let's talk about education. You know, you spoke spoken uh, earlier about the number of um, students in Latin America, both K through 12 in college, that were disconnected during COVID. Not everybody has access to, um, to internet or broadband. And so many of them have fallen behind. Um, what opportunities do you see for the bank to partner with member countries and with um, Um, sub-nationals and the private sector to try to bridge that gap.
1: I think what we're doing right now, there's two initiatives i like to talk about. In terms of education, our, our division at the bank that's focused on this sector has done a phenomenal job of designing a new education framework that actually focuses with the COVID context on the need to revamp how we look at curriculum in the region, how schools are designed, how we get teachers trained up so that they can handle the new wave of the use of technology in classrooms. Um, first part. Second part is under an initiative that we just launched in the last year called IDB Academy. We're actually expanding our network of relationships with academic institutions to see how we can use our technical know-how and skills and resources, uh, work with academic institutions so that we can actually start to deploy into rural areas, areas that are have long been economically depressed, don't have access to the same types of educational services. So we can start to create pilot programs and discuss how we can get kids in school, how we can get high schoolers upskilled, up I mean, we're talking about vocational training that could start in the high school timeframe. So we're trying to figure out how we can do this together with academic institutions who also recognize that there's a gap in terms of the educational system in the region. And then lastly, I would say that private sector is critical. I can say firsthand that since I joined the bank, the private sector has been really interested in having discussions with us because they have that value added. It's not only part of their corporate social responsibility mindset, but they fill a gap in terms of financing that government can't provide. And so what we're trying to do is find those opportunities to work with companies like Microsoft, for example, on technology who can help us build curriculum that touch all of the grades that we're talking about, K-12 through and beyond, in terms of getting training, getting schooling to areas that haven't, haven't really had that access or that COVID has brought about that, they had access in a traditional setting, but not
0: in the normal. Appreciate it. Just want to add. A couple of weeks ago, we held a forum focusing on Ecuador, and the Ministry of Education, Ecuador, spoke about the COVID challenges and some of the ways that they're working around the broadband um, and lack of internet access, and they're looking at radio yeah. as well as television. Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah, exactly. I think we have to be innovative, because at the end of the day, some of the stories that we were hearing when we first joined the bank is that. You know, obviously, the, 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 the communities who have even more limited access to, to education through technology, you would have families where you'd have three kids and each of them had to decide on what, they, what which one would, would join school because there was only one tablet or one computer for the whole family. And that's something that we feel needs to be addressed, that if we could be innovative and creative and think of a way of getting technology to students using other traditional means, like you just said, which is fascinating to me, the use of radio and television to get lessons to kids. There is an appetite and parents want their kids to learn. It's just that they're all facing what I mentioned earlier, that 0 sum choice. It's not just for women, it's for families too. Um, Everyone needs to work. No one can have access to to the technology at the same time. We at the bank are are trying to figure out how we can wedge into this because we have the financing, we have the capacity, and we have the know-how. But we need the partners to help us deploy it in a much more agile
0: way. I want to turn to um, COP26. You're going to be going to Glasgow in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, uh, the, the G7 had committed to $100 billion a year mm-hmm. in financing to support the, the developing world and meeting their, their climate action goals. Um, do you think we're going to get there um, in at COP26? And what role does the bank play in terms of being able to uh, motivate the private sector? Because as we know, governments can't do it alone, and that's gonna have to be bridged by the private sector. And so uh, what can your your thoughts on that?
1: There is a lot of excitement, and I think nervousness about COP26 in terms of whether we can all collectively say that we've met the $100 uh, $100 billion commitment. I can't tell you, yes or no, I think they're crunching the numbers as we speak based on conversations I've had with several interlocutors. But what I can say is that, at least for us, uh, climate cop is an opportunity for us as a regional development bank to take the lead. Um, What we're viewing today is that our climate goals, we're we're struggling to meet our climate goals in part because we're having a problem framing this for governments. But even in our efforts to do that, we've advanced significantly. We're reaching almost over 20 percent of our financing is on climate so what can we do better? I think we need to work with the private sector. And, and we were recently in New York on a roadshow talking to JP Morgan, Citi and others, where they also see climate as an opportunity. We as a bank need to do be better and do better in terms of framing on how we wanna design projects and how we view the climate finance um, opportunities in the region. I think for COP, we at, at the IEB are prepared to make several announcements, which I previewed today, but most importantly, the fact that the partnerships with the private sector are critical. They bring in that agility that sometimes regional development banks lack, but also the creativity in terms of financial instruments. On the private sector side, I will say de-risking is a huge opportunity that we recognize. Um, we need more tools to do um, for the provision of guarantees. Obviously, the bonds are incredibly uh, effective. We want to do more, uh, but we would love to do more, obviously, with other private
0: sector financial. Well, we have, a, we have a question from Brad Johnson in the virtual audience who asked if you could um, talk a little more detail about those opportunities for business partnership with the IDB at breakfast. We also spoke about the potential for philanthropy. Yeah. We, um, you spoke about the partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation. What role can philanthropy play, um, impact investors play, as well as the private sector to, as you say, de-risk some of the opportunities and help to go to scale?
1: Yeah. So first off, we have an amazing office of partnerships. And what we wanted to do is put you know, put it on steroids, um, which is why we launched the Private Sector Coalition, because we viewed COVID as a challenge, yes, for all of us, but also as a huge opportunity. Partnerships with the bank, we are open for business. We welcome any new partner who wants to work with us, either on the co-financing front, on the development of projects. We've done a uh, work with PepsiCo on agriculture. We're doing work with Microsoft on access to rural technology, Google and others on the use of artificial intelligence, blockchain technology. We welcome the interest of the private sector because the problem here is exactly what you said. The government government can't do it all. We need private sector funds. Impact investors and philanthropic organizations have the reputation and have the capacity to touch New audiences in the countries, in the region, and we can go hand in hand with them. I mean, our ideal situation is partnering up with philanthropic organizations, such as the Rockefeller Center, going into communities and building that, those bridges with those communities. Because we have the experience, we have the confidence of the communities, then we can do all that work that perhaps is challenging for governments in some areas of their countries. I think in terms of funding, we can be very creative, that's why we're very excited about Rockefeller because it's, it's pushing us in terms of our thinking of how we can use our own instruments. And how we can bring in the funding that philanthropic organizations have so that we can be very focused, um, I think, for a long time, the institution was afraid to be too focused and wanted to be everywhere, but success is measured by how impactful you can be. And that's why Vision 2025 has helped align the institution in terms of its agenda. And I think it's helped also guide private sector and other institutions in understanding these are our key areas of focus. Philanthropic organizations are a huge opportunity that I think we've done good work, but we can do a lot more.
0: Thank you. We've got a question from um, Rafael Fernandez, the director for Uh, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies here at UCSD, he says fantastic what Chile is doing with electric buses You know, you spoke about the 800,000 they've got on the road now. What can the IDB do to promote electric vehicles and and public transportation across the region?
1: So electric mobility is huge for the bank right now. It is the one of the bigger items on our agendas that we're trying to design uh, a much more strategic framework that can guide our work. I think what we saw in Chile that we participated in, that's why we're very proud of it, It provides a model. What we're doing at the bank now, and I don't know if this is particularly new to the institution, but what we're trying to do is take pilots and concepts like this project in in Chile, and see if we can replicate it. And we've had discussions now with the mayor of Bogota, who's very interested in the concept of electric mobility as well. Colombia suffers a lot from traffic congestion and also environmental impact of that. And so we we want to finance more projects. We don't. We're not looking for big projects. We're looking for really great pilots that we can replicate in the region. So Chile is one example. We're actually looking to scale and expand that as well. Uh, we're looking at it in Colombia and we're doing it in Peru. And I think that it's working. If we if we focus on working with cities, to your point, on working with subnationals, that's an area, a huge boon for us as well. Not just because we're a development bank and we're focused on executing projects but in terms of impact, because you have such a high concentration of populations in urban areas. Mobility is a problem. What COVID did um, by basically emptying out the streets is it showed us that we have a problem with mobility. Not that we didn't know it, but it just visible, made it much more visible. How do we do that? We need to finance more projects. We need to replicate more models. And we're looking to bring that to scale.
0: Thank you. Um, we have a uh, question from Jeremy Martin, the director of our energy program, the Institute of the Americas. Yes, um, what do you think about the role of natural gas in the region? Um, can some countries leap into electrification, or is gas needed for this energy transition?
1: I feel like that's a trick question. I feel like that's mm. a trick question. Um, we at the bank are facing a big internal debate, and I'll be honest about it. The, the, the debate is that natural gas is important, but we're also working on projects that are in transition, where you move from natural gas to renewables. The point here is that we have this approach has to be tailored country to country. It, you know, I speak about it strategically that we need to move to an energy transition, but we are also internally struggling and in debating. We have different countries. We deal with small island countries as well, uh, Guyana, for example, who has now. Um, benefiting from a boon yeah. in fossil fuel? How do we work with a Guyana who still needs governance structures, who needs to go green? Um, so yes, natural gas is going to remain a critical component in the region because it is, that's a fact. It's a truth that we all face. Helping them transition from natural gas is something we're already actively doing. So we're doing everything at the same time, but that's a trick question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we've got a we've got another question from um, Aubrey um, Mahan uh, from our virtual audience. Um, How will the bank ensure that the future green projects are truly green and will benefit the communities, unlike the Alto Majo project in Chile, which was originally built as environmentally friendly, but did not have the support of the communities and also caused serious environmental problems in the region? We've seen this in other countries Mm -hmm. throughout Latin America.
1: So I will refrain from making any comments on Alto Majo. I understand that was a very controversial project. We have Ituango in Colombia, other hydro projects that are, are very controversial. Obviously, we're in the business of taking risks, but we understand the importance. And I firsthand have experienced the importance of what in most countries of the region, there might be different terms, is, consult- is considered the consulta previas, you know, making sure you have community buy-in. What we've done as a new administration coming in is said we have to be better at community buy-in. We are not here to come in, overtake, invest, and then walk away. If we're a development bank, we're in for the long run. And so how do you ensure that that projects are greener that you're actually affecting the communities in a positive way? We have to be honest with ourselves. What have we done wrong before and fix those mistakes and do it better next time? And that's a culture change for the institution. Um, Institutions inherently, I've worked in many of them, don't like to admit failure, but I'm okay with admitting failure because it means we're continuing to learn as an institution and as a development institution as well. We want to be in the 21st century. We have to work with communities. Look. There are always going to be controversies with communities because governments struggle with communication. Um, governments struggle with what we say in Spanish, aterrizar, the concept of aterrizar ideas, landing ideas into the day-to-day of what impacts populations. And we've struggled with it too. I'll say it. I hope not too many people see me say that but it's true. We struggled with it too. We need to be better about it. We at the bank, it's our role to be honest. This is going to affect you this way. This is going to affect you in a good way. These are the possible implications. And I think we're getting better at that. I think our our country representatives, we have one in in 26 countries, are doing better about communicating and prioritizing that engagement with communities. It's just a a key part. You can't advance anything without buy-in. So for us, it's a culture change and we're doing it one step at a time.
0: We've got... um... A few minutes left. I have one last question. Uh, A key theme of the post-COVID recovery has been Build Back Better, and that's something that a lot of countries are beginning to embrace. Um, At the bank, what do you see as some of the examples of leadership post-recovery and moving towards net zero that other countries in Latin America could learn from?
1: I think Two examples start. One is Barbados and their Roots to Reefs program, and it's the start of what is now becoming the phenomenon of the blue economy. I think that's huge. I think government's taking the reins, and, and what I'm saying, it's important, framing it for their citizens, that this is becoming existential. We need to address these issues together and find solutions that incorporate our economies and not just impose externalities. I think that's number one example. I think the decarbonization plan that we've done with Costa Rica is a huge, It's for us, it's a, it's a monumental project because that's a good lesson for other countries to follow on what you can do that doesn't adversely affect your economy, but then gets you to a net zero.
0: We're working a lot
1: also on innovative tools in terms of carbon swaps and credits. And I think that that's something that a lot of countries in the region are interested in working with IDB on as well. And we're looking to pilot some of those projects soon.
0: One, one final question. We have a, a graduate student who is asking about what sort of skills um, are needed for the students of the future um, in this sort of move towards net zero. What would you recommend students consider getting into? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a great question, as a former political scientist and economist who tried to hide those skills. I think to get into the future, if I could be completely honest, I think it would be important to have a strong background in anthropology. And I'm going to say this because I shared this uh, at our breakfast earlier today that I'm a secret anthropologist. I believe that to work on any green recovery, you have to know the different needs, which are are very heterogeneous of every country that you want to work in. And how do you do that? You got to be in country. You got to get your hands dirty. So I would say take risks. Go live in country. Go in rural communities. See what the challenges really are it's not in the capitals of these countries. It's in the rural communities. And take those opportunities when you can. So what skill, take risks. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Jessica, um, I really appreciate uh, your uh, your presence today here oh, at the Institute of the, of the Americas. Uh, it's an honor to have you at our first virtual forum. We look forward to many more. I want to thank all of you that participated today. And um, we hope to um, have you at future Institute of Americas um, events in the future. Uh, thank you and have a good day. Thank you.